This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hello and welcome to CXMH, also known as a few things considered with Robert Vore and my co-host Mustafa Washington. Mustafa, how are you doing this afternoon? I am not going to laugh, so I too will match your tone and just simply say welcome to everyone. Yes, great. What we're going to do for the next 60 minutes is sit in silence, starting now. Okay, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. Oh, that was great. I was doing my best NPR voice. I was hoping we could. We're hoping to get on a network. So uh, Loved it. Yeah. That's we, great. Uh, hey, welcome to the show. Look, here's what I have learned. In, uh, in my years as a writer, right? That makes me sound 475 years old. In my years as a writer, there Steve, are when you people... pause and reflect back on the long life that you've had, what are the lessons <laughs> that you take for our younger <laughs> listeners like myself? Um, hmm. Well, <laughs> if I can, Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Robert. If I can't joke, I might as well sign off. I, we have so many awesome listeners who love us and take us as we are and know that we are carrying on a very serious conversation about a very serious topic, but that we are not the most serious guys in the world and that life is way too short and we laugh and joke and have a good time. Sometimes we're going to say things that you're like, wow, you know what? Potty humor is too much for me. Sorry about that. We won't talk about potty humor every week, but sometimes... Things are just funny, and I'm a dude, and I talk about funny stuff. I am not intentionally going to offend any of you, but if you get offended, I apologize for that. We love you. Hope you'll keep listening, but here's what I've learned in my years as a writer. Sometimes we just disagree, and it's okay. Moving on. Steve, setting aside all that shenanigans, how, how are you doing? Man, I'm good. It is, uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, enjoying life. What about yeah. you? I'm doing well. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday, but by the time this comes out, it'll be Monday. And so this past weekend, I'll speak as if it's Monday, this past weekend, Brooke and I went on a little mini vacation there for the weekend. So I assume by the time anyone's listening to this, I'll be nice and refreshed and, you know, ready to get back to it. So so if your Thursday is your Monday, is your, is your Monday your Thursday? Ooh. Mm. Is it almost Friday now? Hey, I'll take it. What time zone are we in? Oh my gosh, I'm so confused. (laughs) (laughs) All right. 
so we have a couple things to a couple just business things to get out of the way. Our the winner of our giveaway is announced today, Monday, uh, March thirteenth. So if you are listening to this, it's already been announced. We can't say it right now because we're recording this ahead of time. But go check our social media. We want to make sure that the winner knows that. Well, I mean, we'll email them too. But we're really excited to give away all these signed copies of some fantastic books. So we're we're really excited about that. And it is announced in our newsletter, which goes out today, Monday, at 12 noon Central Standard Time. So if it is not yet 12, you will be getting it shortly. But uh, if it's already past 12, check your email because I'm sure that you have gone to the website and subscribed to our incredible newsletter by now. Yeah. If you're listening to this on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, just, you know, kind of translate in your head. If you're listening to this on a Thursday or Friday, come on, get with it. Let's be a little more on top of things. I'm kidding. I listen to podcasts oh, like love super it. late. Except for this one. Well, I listen to this one again just beforehand when I'm editing it. So I just have no concept of time with podcasts, I guess. Nice. Sweet. The other thing, huge, huge shout out and thank you to our three supporters on Patreon already. We opened that up last week and we have three supporters already. Already. There's those Sorry, crowds we'll again. Calm the crowd down. Yeah, yeah, they're back from a, a yep. last from week or a last few weeks week. ago. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So we want to say a huge thank you to them, and it just so happens that they they've signed up for one of each of the three levels. So that's helpful. So we have uh, one at the five dollar level that gets you a, a copy of our brand new book that we just released. You'll get the ebook if you sign up for that. If you sign up for the ten dollar level. You will get that ebook and a physical copy mailed to you. And if you sign up for the $25 level, you will get both of those. But the physical copy will have a nice little note in it from both myself and Steve here. Who knows what name he'll sign it, but that's all right. Maybe he'll sign it Steve Austin. <laughs> yeah, so cxmhpodcast.com slash support. We're really excited about that, especially about the book. This is the only way that you can get it at the moment, so you definitely want to go check that out. And if you just like the show, you think we're funny, you think you're learning something, you think these conversations are important, it's a great way to help us out. And if you don't think we're fun, never mind. Never mind. I'll leave it alone. <laughs> hey, and you should also check out the hashtag, hashtag I love Jesus, but on Twitter – There are so many awesome tweets going around right now. It's not necessarily trending, quote-unquote, but a lot of people have responded with, I love Jesus, but I'm depressed, or I'm anxious, or all these very specific things that are true to their journey. So if you um, check out that hashtag and share your story with us using that hashtag, it's been a whole lot of fun this last week or so. Absolutely. Last thing before we go into the interview, please do us a favor. Again, if you like the show, like anything about it, even if you don't like the show but you think the content is important, subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play. Talk about us, uh, tweet at us, you know, post on Facebook. I can tell you that almost every podcast I listen to, I listen to because somebody said, hey, I think you would like this. You should check it out. So, Please, please help us out and do that if you think it's worth it. All right, this interview is great. We we talk with Dr. Heather Vosick about the history of the church's views 
towards mental health. So it's it's really interesting. I found it fascinating kind of how we get to where we are now, what shapes a lot of the views that we see now, a lot of the attitudes, uh, kind of put some historical context on it. She's super smart. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. she knows so much. I learned so much and yeah, super enjoyed it. Yeah, and she learned some from going through magazines. So that's inspiring for my life. Oh, yeah. That was really interesting. Ah, I forgot about that part. Yeah. All right. Well, here you go. Here's our interview with Dr. Heather Vasek. All right. We are here today with Dr. Heather Vasek. How are you, Dr. Vasek? I'm wonderful. Thanks. Quick bio here. You are the Vice President for Academics and the Dean of Faculty and Associate Professor of Church History at Pittsburgh Theological. It's a great place to work. I'm grateful to be there. You also, you wrote this book that we're going to get to in a second, which I've really been enjoying. But you research a lot of what you deal with is Protestant reactions to mental illness throughout time. Is that right? It is. It is. In particular, I'm interested in uh, the, the intersection between belief and practice. So what do people of faith say they believe and how does that or how does that not shape their responses? And so this fits fits in that area of curiosity for me. Ooh, I love that area. <laughs> that could be a conversation by itself, Robert. What do we say we believe versus what we actually do with it? That's good stuff. It shapes many of the classes I teach it in history of Christianity. I believe it. Might have to do a follow-up episode. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I, um, you, you've said that I teach at a theological seminary. Uh, this is not where I've always been. I started my career as an as an engineer in uh, at, in high tech companies and experienced a, a call to ministry, which led me back to to attend the seminary and then to earn uh, earn a doctorate. Um, along the way, I realized, as I've said, I have this interest in what people of faith do and how their beliefs anchor that, or sometimes how what they do does not seem to be anchored in their beliefs. Um, my study of Protestants and mental illness, I, I also kind of have a curiosity of studying things that pe- good church people don't like to talk about, and mental illness often seems to be one of those. Um, we can be friends. Definitely. <laughs> so there's, I mean, my my own observations watching friends and family um, live with mental illness and often needing things from or hoping for things from the church that they didn't receive. Uh, whereas, you know, someone's child had their tonsils out and they had a week full of casseroles. That didn't seem to be the case with, often with people who checked a loved one into a mental hospital who really needed care. I did some work as a seminary student as a chaplain, a volunteer chaplain, largely in a state mental hospital, which really was both wonderful and challenging work, but it really helped shape some of my questions to see the the nature um, of suffering of those who suffered pretty severely for those who were hospitalized. And so this is, um, seems to me like an important space. The conversations I've had with people since beginning this work and publishing the book seem to affirm that. So I'm, uh, I'm grateful for others like you guys to be in conversation with. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, you had a previous career, but then got called into ministry. What type of ministry work did you do? So I am ordained in a small denomination, the Moravian Church in North America. And so I'm, uh, I'm ordained in that tradition and have done some parish, parish work, but largely my um, work in ministry is in theological education. And so I'm um, teaching and serving in a seminary. 
Okay, so I'm going to let my ignorance shine brightly here. I know nothing about the Moravian Church. Can um, you give us just a little a taste of what the Moravian Church is all about? I would be more than happy to. We we in North America are not very big. For example, in the, the county that Pittsburgh is in, there are more Presbyterians in this county than there are Moravians in North America. So the wow. fact that you don't know anything about us is uh, not unusual. So the Moravian Church ties its origins before the Protestant Reformation. If you've ever heard of the the reformer John Huss, um, who preached in Prague, uh, was had many of the same convictions as Martin Luther did a, a century later, the ability for laity to read scripture in their own language, um, communion in two kinds for for all, not just for clergy. Um, he he was burned at the stake. He didn't make it, but a group of his followers went underground and surfaced a couple centuries later in what's now southeastern Germany, almost in Poland, almost in the Czech Republic, and from there um, went out following a missionary impulse really around the world. Um, landed in North America in the mid-1700s. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania is um, was founded by Moravians, as was Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And we're a tradition that values, uh, really values community very strongly. Um, but again, there aren't a lot of us in North America. Most Moravians today are in um, Africa, in the Caribbean, um, but some of some of us spread uh, mostly in pockets in North America, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. If I can ask, it might be a little, I don't know, we'll see how it goes, but how does your church do in, uh, in terms of responding to mental health, things like that? Because you mentioned typically we see tons of casseroles for other sicknesses, other needs. Uh, how does your church do? So I think that we're probably pretty average, which is not um, not high praise necessarily. But I think that the Moravian Church, like many um, Protestant denominations and traditions, um, spend some time trying to think about what it should be doing at um, at a denominational level or in organizations. And so there are, you know, conversations set for Moravians in dif different geographic areas to learn about mental illness, which I think is pretty important. I think um, as a stigmatized illness, in many ways, education uh, is the first step in destigmatizing and providing providing a pathway for care. But I also think we're very typical. I mean, I talked about um, realizing watching family and friends suffer when the church um, might be doing something. I mean, that realization hit me sitting in a in a pew in a Moravian congregation. So I think we're very stereotypical in that way uh, of not always having the language and attentiveness to deal with things. But I can think of particular pockets within my own tradition, churches that I want to say are very honest in the world that surrounds them. These are often uh, ministries that engage deeply with the communities that they're a part of. Uh, that deal with mental illness in a more open way. Often these are ministries that that work with individuals who who are homeless, um, who have housing struggles. Um, and that is good work. I think I think what's harder is in a sort of a social and an economic situation where there's a sense that when you come to church, you should mostly be fine, that it's much harder to talk about um, to talk about mental illness. So we're pretty normal, I think. Sure. Well, thank you.
So this book that we're going to talk about is entitled Madness, American Protestant Responses to Mental Illness. And it's part of a, a book series called Studies in Religion, Theology, and Disability. How did this book come about? Were you approached to write this book from people who are familiar with your research? Or did you approach the people who are doing that, the series? How did it come about? Sure. This, uh, the research for this book actually stems from my doctoral dissertation. So I, um, I began this work as a student at Duke Divinity School. Um, and I thought, I thought what I was going to write about was a deep reflection about how mainline and evangelical Protestants in the 20th century reacted to mental illness quite differently. So I spent some time, uh, if you're familiar at all, with the, with the publications Christianity Today and the Christian Century, sure. two publications that re- sort of represent those populations. And I, I have read through all of those in the 20th century, looking for mentions of mental illness, looking for book reviews. And there was quite a story to tell about a difference in response, um, a, a, a comfort with secular care on the part of mainline Protestants, but a kind of abdication of the church's responsibility versus uh, more skeptic, skepticism found in Christianity today by evangelical believers um, in a sense that there was really something about spiritual care that that perhaps was primary. And so I started off to write a 20th century book, uh, maybe a chapter of back history. And as I dug into uh, primary and secondary sources for that back history, I realized there was a there was a story to tell about the church's responses to mental illness in the centuries before the 20th century. And so the book as um, as is, Um, spends one chapter on the 20th century with the previous four chapters digging into that prehistory because there's a story to tell there about why we are the shape we are today. Wow. So to catch something you said there, you've read every issue of those magazines from the 20th century or the 21st century? I have. I haven't read every word of every publication, um, but I have sat uh, flipping electronically and with volumes on my lap looking for any mention, really any mention of illness. Um, I wanted to see if mental illness was treated any different than other types of illnesses in those publications, but I would um, often check out, you know, four years worth of bound periodicals uh, at the library in the afternoon and come home at night and sit on the sofa and flip through them looking for articles. So yes, it's um. If you have any question about 20th century Christianity, <laughs> I recommend this as a fascinating exercise. Um, I feel like you should win like a Guinness World Record for that. I know. Oh, I am. Surely I, nobody else owns that. Title. No, I, I am sure I'm not the only scholar. In fact, I think I know some other scholars who've dug deeply to do this. There, it's a it's a rich resource. I mean, one of my deep conviction about the work of history is that the study of history is not just for the sake of studying the past, but there, there is something in that study to be gleaned um, for the present and for the future. And so I think taking the chance in some ways, looking through all those issues was a way to slow down and to hear from Christians in those decades what, what seemed most important. Um, and some of it's just, just plain old fun to see what was advertised. I mean, early 20th century <laughs> cribs advertised for church nurseries looked a little bit more like tiny jail cells uh, <laughs> than cribs. And so, you know, there's there's fun along the way as well. Yeah. Did you notice all the, the different styles throughout? Because Christian culture tends to have its own styles and things as well. 
Yeah, um, that style was a little bit more. I also looked at some denominational publications, Presbyterians Today. It's a it's a publication that's had some different names over the years. Tended to feature more lay people, and so you and um, you know had a sort of how to talk to your children kind of sections more. So more lay audience than than a clerical audience in the case of Christian Century. But yes, that was certainly there. I mean, you also gain a sense of what political issues are on the landscape. Um, and then that in some ways can help inform a look at something like attention to to suffering. Wow. I think you've just convinced me that I need to go look at old magazines and flip through, trace things throughout. Well, good. I'm glad about that. One of the things I tell my seminary students in a first class period is that, um, A, I love the work of history, and B, my not-so-secret ploy is to get people to love that traveling through the past as well. So if I have made sitting and looking through a a century worth of old magazines seem like fun, um, my my work here is done. (laughs) You know, I just think it's fun. To me, it it sounds, and please know my heart here. I don't mean this to, I don't know, I should think of a better way to say this, but I'm going to go ahead with it. it. It doesn't sound like the most academic thing to me, like we're looking through magazines. But I think that's so awesome that it is absolutely a wonderful way to follow the thread of history through these Matt, you know, I'm I'm picturing a, a professor and an academic in a library, you know, with their nose in the encyclopedia. But you're you're following history through these very culture, current event type magazines in the in the Christian world. I think it's awesome. Yeah, and in some ways, what I've done in the book is do that same thing through a number of different periods. I mean, the the sources, what historians would call primary sources, are different. Um, but just to give to give some quick examples through the periods that my my book covers, I start by looking at Cotton Mather, a colonial clergyman, a, a Puritan, the town intellectual. And so Cotton Mather uh, left diaries, letters, other works. And so, you know, the equivalent of of digging in and walking around on the ground with people who lived in those periods if, for Cotton Mather was reading those documents. The, the second figure I looked at was a physician, Benjamin Rush, um, also someone who felt called to attend to suffering and to um, make the world a better place by his faith. Rush also wrote um, wrote a significant amount of material at near the end of his life. Um, he worked to systematize sort of the first systemization of what we would t- today call mental illness. Cotton Mather, by the way, wrote the, as a clergyman, wrote the the colony's first medical volume and has a chapter on, chapters on what he calls madness and melancholy. Uh, the next figure was is Dorothea Dix, uh, a lay woman who, after spending some time teaching Sunday school in a New England jail, realized that there were people who were suffering deeply, um, many suffering with mental conditions, and Dix left. Her legacy is really documented in the work she did petitioning legislatures around the country for better treatment and care. And to fund that um, advocacy, she traveled uh, 10,000 miles by herself on horseback, uh, visiting those who suffered, who at that period were often housed in jails and documenting the horrible conditions. 
The next figure is a guy named Anton Boysen, a Presbyterian clergyman who suffered with mental illness, had a couple pretty significant um, stays in hospitals, and his reflections as a clergyman looking around both at his own illness um, shaped books and works and advocacy about the training of clergy. Um, and then Carl Menninger, a psychiatrist in the 20th century, wrote wrote extensively. He wrote uh psychiatry texts for those who are studying, but he also wrote popular publications, wrote in Ladies Home Journal. And so all of this together forms a kind of um, set of documents that as a scholar, I can look at and observe and try to think about what, what has changed over time, what's different. Those individuals in many ways took a kind of different stance than most of the world around them in their focus on mental illness and their attentiveness. Um, but this, this for me, is part of the fun of history is figuring out what's there and figuring out how to interpret it. It's so interesting. I am a, I love history. I don't know that I would call myself a history buff, but I've always enjoyed it. It was my, always, always my favorite class in school, high school, college, all that. Um, Cotton Mather stands out only because the only thing that you really learn about him in a in a sort of a surface overview, you know, history class um, is all the stuff on the Salem witch trials. So that name stood out um, just from that. But I didn't realize that he had an influence on um, the mental health world as we know it. He really did. I mean, it, like all humans, Cotton Mather is a pretty complicated figure. Uh, his his role in those Salem witch trials, which is how how many people know him, tends to be a little bit uh, exaggerated and tends to be the thing we know. But he, I mean, he wrote a medical volume out of deep concern for his fellow citizens. And, and, and for Mather, he's an interesting figure because he doesn't see the separation between medicine and faith. It's all part of the same whole. So God is the great physician. Um, yeah. And illness for Mather is this prompt to turn to uh, to turn one's dependence to God. And so I expected to find in Mather a kind of condemnation of those who suffered, a kind of condemnation in particular for those who suffered, again, what he called madness and melancholy. But that that wasn't there. Um, he talked about, he, he quoted someone else in saying, what is the whole world but a madhouse? And so he kind of in my mm. eyes, understood this this fact that that mental health, mental illness exists along a spectrum, um, and attended to it well. It isn't that he didn't have any judgment for those with illness, but that in this um, the medical volume is called the Angel of Bethesda. When he looked at uh, venereal disease, he refused to talk about it, saying that those who suffered deserved um, deserved their suffering. But that I sort of would have expected before I'd read the volume to find that in terms of mental illness, but that kind of stigma that exists today wasn't there and didn't shape his treatment. Very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I found interesting about him you, uh, in here, there's a line where you wrote, his willingness to seek help displayed the understanding that medicine was a gift from God. So I think a lot of us, when we think back Puritan or even Salem Witch Trials, we think that they kind of pushed everything into the supernatural realm and and things like that. But there was even, as you mentioned, he wrote a medical volume and there was even a case where he was advocating for some medical treatment and got some pushback from it during an, an outbreak of disease as well. Right? Yep. During a, during a yellow fever outbreak. So, so Mather again was a, was p- perhaps the best read individual in his context. And so he had read that vaccinations 
might prevent, help prevent illness and advocated. Here we also see the authority that clergy people carried in the medical realm at this time. So he's advocating against against the better judgment of physicians, some physicians, for inoculation. And they weren't all happy about his incursion into the medical space. But that's a kind of clerical church authority in the medical realm that I think we can we can trace as declining over time as the as medicine gains a kind of professional standing and in many ways takes away that broad authority that we see in Mather, um, leaving, if you will, Christians to have a kind of spiritual authority, but no no broader authority. Yeah, and that actually segues pretty well into Benjamin Rush, right? Because when we start getting into his chapter, we see more of the professionalization of the medical fields, things like that, which leads to clergy people having kind of less of a say in the way that Mather did. Right. And so the the professionalization of medicine is happening in the in the 18th, clearly in the 19th century. Rush is is part of that as medical training shifts from just being something that you can gain in Europe to something that you can gain in North America. He has helped founding and teaching at medical schools. I mean, he's, again, he's got this Christian conviction that he feels, he feels called to help alleviate suffering in the world. I mean, he's, he's launching hospitals, caring for people, caring not just for the rich, but for the poor as part of that work. But he's also working to form form dis- this discipline and systematize the work of medicine. I mean, this is the rise of the Enlightenment and rational thought and trying to apply that systematically to, to the work of medicine. Attention. He, oh, go ahead. He would have, I'm sorry. He would have been, I guess, what we would call today a, a a pretty liberal guy. I mean, he was this guy. We're talking about a social activist, and and no small time guy. He's a Benjamin Rush was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, right? He was. So he yeah, he, he was uh, a big deal. He he knew the the folks we would call the founding fathers. He advocated for abolition. He is um, you know he's in support of somebody like Richard Allen, who founded the AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So he, you know, for, he helps found Dickinson College for him. This is all about this call to be as a Christian in the world and yeah. bringing betterment. And so, you know, the terms liberal and conservative are are complicated and loaded, but if engagement in the world is one of those measures, he is clearly someone who feels called to be in the world. Fantastic. I loved this chapter. I found it so interesting because of the role that the Enlightenment plays. I mean, even Benjamin Rush goes through kind of a personal shift from more of a, he had kind of Calvinist roots and things, and then shifted towards a view of a more loving God and things like that, right? Yes. And so we see, you know, faith, Faith is rarely static for people or often not static. I'll try to make that a little bit less general. Um, and we <laughs> see that kind of progression for Rush as well. So he is um, raised in a relatively strict religious environment. And that, I think, grounds him very deeply. But then he comes, as you've said, to to a, a, a bit more wide understanding of how he thinks that God may operate in the world. Yeah, and it seemed to me like it, it kind of mirrored what was happening or maybe would happen a little bit after him. Uh, he was kind of on the forefront of it 
from a view of suffering as as punishment for sin or some or purely a spiritual matter into the enlightenment um we we believe that we can solve a lot of problems mm-hmm. things like that right he kind of pushes into that territory which is where we see a large shift kind of on the tail end of him right yeah absolutely so versus someone like cotton mather who's going to say of course, all illness is related to sin, but he's he doesn't mean that in a in a particularly linear way. So he says there are some sometimes people do things that we can understand the punishment that comes from those actions. But sometimes um, suffering is simply part of the human condition. Those are my words, not his. But there's a kind of uh, allowance for mystery that the rise of the Enlightenment and the desire to solve problems and a, a deeply rooted confidence in human ability to bring solutions is going to, is as you said, it's going to change that um, and bring in this kind of deep optimism that suffering can be controlled if not eliminated. And that's certainly true. You know, it's part of why he systematizes his observations about mental illness because he's documentation of, of those realities is the first step in trying to figure out cures. And he spends a lot of time thinking thinking about cures. He is um, among the physicians of old who thought things like bloodletting. Um, if illness is connected to the vascular system, um, everything has to do with blood. So bloodletting was one of his tools of the trade. And if you can manage, imagine someone in a, a manic state who loses a significant amount of blood, they probably will calm down significantly. And so you can you can see where cause and effect seem to tie together there, but um, the medical world moved moved beyond that. But yeah, he's trying to solve problems. Yeah, and he he was I don't know I think it's I don't know what people would have been like during Russia's time, but at least at some point, maybe this is later in his life, but he became a pretty balanced guy from a from a a medical standpoint and certainly as a, a Christian in the medical field to, to talk about people having varying degrees of mental illness that, that you weren't crazy or not. You know, I, I would assume he was one of the first to, to say that you could have varying degrees. Of yeah. And again, that's it. That was Cotton Mather. So that was very early. Um, and I, and I think that that kind of allowance for sick or not sick becomes harder to hold on to as mm-hmm. time progresses. Mm. So interesting. What I loved about Rush is the way that he his faith seemed to impact all his public work, right? Uh, you wrote, society was bettered only if the conditions of those who suffered most improved, or pain in Rush's eyes, including the suffering that stemmed from mental maladies, formed primarily a medical problem, but one that Christians had a responsibility to address through medical innovation and advocacy. And I love that because that's so on par with you know, the goal of this show or Steve's writing or my writing or maybe even your research, things where we say that our faith impacts the way that we're we're trying to do things kind of in the public sphere in, in relieving suffering. Yeah, I think so. I mean, for, for me, there's this primary, okay, so what question that says, and again, this is this intersection for me between belief and practice. Given what I believe, given what the historical figures I study believe, how, how does that shape what they do? what they do beyond beyond a life of prayer, beyond attendance of worship, um, even beyond life in Christian community. I think that, that people respond very differently, and I think that that's fascinating. And Rush is like the father of American psychiatry, is that right? Yes, father sort of, of American 
Um, yeah, father of uh, American psychology is probably a better term there. But yeah, okay. and, and that's really in his his systematization of of illness. I just think it's so awesome to find you know these these people who are pillars of of their community and and such an important figure in American history um, from a medical standpoint, certainly from a mental illness standpoint, uh, but who is also when, as we're talking about faith. A very gracious person, you know, to talk about the church's role in ending suffering or not ending it, but responding to it. It's it's a fantastic lesson for the church today from a guy who lived in the 1700s. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and in some ways, that's why each of these figures emerged as the subject of chapters, because they're really yeah. interesting figures to look to look around at. None of them are perfect, um, of course. I mean, we can look at someone like Mather, even someone like Rush, and despite advocacy and help, they they hold some pretty racist beliefs. And so they are, as we are, creatures of our time. But I think attending um, to all of those realities, again, te- teaches us something about the so what for our current situation. Absolutely. So then we push even further into the next chapter where we see Dorothea Dix not only having her faith impact her personal mission, if you will, but she takes it almost a step further and gets into advocacy and legislation and things of that nature. Right. So so Dix is traveling and writing and observing and advocating in the early to mid-19th century. So this is a time that the nation is still relatively new, where institution building in general is happening. And so she is connecting to those forces, um, to a world that is open to that kind of institution and she she sees this need so she hears people talking about deplorable conditions in a local prison and this is at age about 40 she's been a teacher mostly out on her own supporting younger siblings making money by publishing books and that teaching work and finally four decades into life feels like that she has um, finally found what god has called her to do in advocating for those who suffer And so she finds attentive audiences in her um, true and sensational accounts of people chained, people covered um, in filth and not well cared for. She's also doing this work alongside the rise of psychiatry as a professional discipline within the world of medicine. It's one of the earliest medical specialties. And so um, mental hospitals, they would have often been called asylums at that point, were some of the first specialized hospitals and often in Dix's day attracted some of the top physicians. And so she befriends this group. Um, They rely on one another. They, They have the kind of scientific, medical, and cultural authority to launch the reforms that she sees are important. And she provides this kind of connection between them and the public um, advocacy that helps their work grow. And so this, her advocacy work takes her, takes her to those prisons as, or prisons often uh, before her, they, they seemed like prisons, takes her around the country to those hospitals um, in that, in that network. And so this is a time of great optimism of therapeutic care uh, at work here is also a, a legacy of Christian attention. The earliest hospitals for those suffering from mental maladies were uh, launched by Christians, by often by Quakers, both in uh, Britain and in North America. And that lesson of a kind of holistic care 
both physical, mental, and spiritual for individuals is is woven in, in into many of the earliest asylums. And so there's great optimism about the ability to treat and cure individuals, a kind of optimism that's going to diminish significantly by the end of the 19th century. But she's part of that early wave. And again, she's she feels called called to this kind of work. Yeah, and what I found interesting about her is she was certainly no stranger to suffering or, or challenges, right? As you mentioned, she spent most of her life as a teacher doing things, but feeling like there was this desperation for where is the will of God? Where's what he's calling mm-hmm. me to? Uh, so much so that she is working so hard that she ends up kind of having a, a kind of a mental breakdown at one point and some friends send her off kind of on a little vacation and then she comes back and is working extra hard, but kind of a a badass, if you will, because it's a, a time period wherein women aren't the leading thinkers or speakers or things on on most issues, but she's out there meeting the foremost people in all these different areas and connecting them and, and advocating, which is incredible. Yeah, she's. Um, I think she's pretty fantastic. I both think that she would be very fun to be able to meet, but I also think she's kind of harsh and severe in personality. So I'm not sure she'd be a particularly delightful conversation (laughs) partner, but she's incredibly impressive. And I think, you know, your comments about her bring, bring to mind um, a number of really interesting realities about her context, right? So she has a kind of moral authority as a woman, a kind of authority that in the 19th century and certainly early 20th century, women are given this kind of moral authority. It requires for the most part, keeping that authority in the right space. So it's often a domestic authority, but she's she's able to move beyond that and help the nation claim a kind of moral authority um, in state legislatures. And so she she's fascinating in that navigation. Um, you mentioned, you know, she's she suffers what was probably a, a some sort of breakdown. Her friends help fund a trip for her to England. Um, and so we can see here her social economic status, even as a as a single woman fending for herself, she is c- well enough connected that, that that kind of respite is possible. She also spends some time uh, with Will- William Ellery Channing, a prominent clergyman in the Boston area, caring for his children as they take respites in the Caribbean. And so um, she has some resources, she has some means, both from her own work, from her connections, but also from some family inheritance. And all of that shapes her story. But she she does something with that. I was teaching a, a class yesterday looking at Christian social action, and one of the questions we asked of each figure was, what, what are the choices people had? What did they decide to do? And why? Um, and so Dick's most certainly could have could have spent her life teaching and writing books. She seemed to be gifted at it, but that's not where she felt called to be. Yeah. I think it's fantastic that she made such a an impression on on local legislature, state government, all of that. Um, that she was given her own private suite when she died at the state hospital, you know, yep. because she was yep. she was so ill there before she died. That I think that's impressive too. It's it's kind of creepy that she you know lived at the state hospital, but at the same time. She was, I guess, honored in that way. Yeah, she was. And I mean, and I think um, I think a 20th century one flew over the cuckoo's nest conception of, of mental hospitals is probably makes that even harder to think about. But if we think about those earliest asylums as retreats, and many of them had the word retreat in their title as a place, as a place of rest, a place in the country, again, where one's 
physical, emotional, spiritual well-being could all be attended to. It's a, it's a little bit easier to picture why that might have been a logical resting place. I mean, no nurse I, ratchet there. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. <laughs> Although that that was to come shortly, and that's I mean, and that is absolutely part of the story. Those hospitals that Dix helped launch by the end of the 19th century were often overcrowded, understaffed. This is as it, national infrastructure built, as population grew, as immigration um, accelerated, as problematic citizens were um, no longer able to be cared for directly by family members because more people are in kind of a public workspace. The nature of those institutions changed pretty dramatically and they became not places of retreat and rest, but places of, of warehousing. They started to look in terms of treatment much more like the conditions that Dix had found early in her journeys in some of the jails where those who suffered from mental maladies were we're side by side with prisoners. So sad. Okay, so so far we've seen kind of a gradual shift towards the professionalization of the medical fields, the mental health fields, things like that. And then we get to Anton Boysen, who you mentioned is a, a Presbyterian clergy member. And then his, his chapter here is entitled Reclaiming Religious Authority in Medicine. What's happening there? Yes, yeah, so... Uh, Boysen, Anton Boysen, is hospitalized sort of after this shift in the shape of, of institutional care. And so is he, I mean, he, by all accounts, suffered some pretty significant psychotic breaks, finds himself um, in a hospital that he thinks is not tending well to his spiritual needs. So he sees a complete division between the, the religious, he would say the spiritual here, he means Christianity, and the medical um, and he thinks, he talks about tearing open a veil between the two and finding a way um, for those. Some illnesses, he said, were, were physical, were biological, some were spiritual, and being able to tend well to the type of illness it was made the most sense. And so he, you know, even, even while still a patient, is dreaming about the ways that the training of clergy can be supplemented to kind of to to learn this reality and to help provide that kind of care. And so he initiates early chaplaincy work first in mental hospitals. So for for folks who are familiar with what is called clinical pastoral education, something that still today many seminarians take a time to to work in a hospital um, was part of my training is something that Boysen helps initiate. And again, to put clergy in places where suffering of both a medical and a spiritual nature is happening and to help folks know how to minister in that context. He isn't particularly public about his mental illness until very late in life. So we see we see the stigma that is has started to attach itself to mental illness, a stigma that I think is there in part because as medical science is improving and is able to solve many other ailments, it has not proven um, that it can solve mental illness. And, and some of this sort of turn to the individual and the larger world and hope for human progress comes back on those who suffer and at least leaves a suspicion that those who suffer from mental illness may have caused this themselves. And so we see kind of a reversal from what we saw in Cotton Mather centuries before. Um, there's also a general, you know, a sense of delinquency and crime. And these are things that are seen not as 
societal issues, but as individual behavioral issues. And all this goes together um, to stigmatize those who suffer, which then I think is going to uh, make good church people not want to hang out with those who are stigmatized. Isn't there some tension kind of both ways, though, right? Because we see as the professionalization of medical fields happen, we see pushback against uh, clergy and religious people who want to help in those ways. But then we see kind of the other direction, the influence of people who continue, I mean, not maybe not the predominant, but who continue to draw parallels between sin and illnesses, sin and mental illnesses, especially because you can't see the the symptoms and things like that. Isn't there some tension going both ways? Yeah, there absolutely is. And so in the in the early and mid-20th century, we see the rise of um, not just psychiatry, but psychology, a kind of Freudian analysis that begins to be suspicious of religion. And so we see um, in some corners of the medical profession, a dismissal or a real suspicion of um, spirituality and religious influence. Um, and we see as as American Christianity is diversifying pretty significantly after the first couple uh, decades of the 20th century on the part of some Christians, a real suspicion of a kind of medicine that rejects an understanding of religion and, and its role in life. And so, yes, there are, there are figures like Boysen who are trying to, to knit together some of those worlds, but that knitting is happening against um, deepening animosity. And it's why someone like the final figure I write about, Carl Benninger, is is unusual in someone who's trying to continue to do that kind of knitting work and bring together both medical professionals and clergy people. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I, I appreciated about Menninger when you wrote about him, because you do we do see Freud and, and things like that. He has obviously some not great quotes on his views on religion and things, but what we see in Menninger is someone who's trying to bring both of them together, who says, hey, these things can work together, things like that. So tell us a little bit about him. Sure. So he, um, he too, is a Presbyterian. He was raised in a house where his mother invited people in need to stay with them. Um, his father was a physician, small town, Kansas. Um, and and at, at medical school, Carl Menninger ends up finding that he's really interested in neurological disorders and mental illnesses and eventually comes comes back home to Topeka to run, help his father in that medical practice early in his career. He finds that he has to smuggle patients who are suffering from mental illnesses in under different diagnostic categories because the town doesn't really like that attention to this kind of deviant illness. Eventually, he's kind of um, heralded as a a fantastic local son of Topeka, but early on we see this this work of stigma, and at the Menninger Clinic, uh, it, which is now in Houston, but began began in Topeka, um, we find Menninger not only providing good care and innovating care, bringing in physicians from around the world, but also inviting clergy in to talk about this intersection between faith and mental illness, and also talking about this in the public sphere. Um, along the way, he's trying to combat stigma. He has a has an article where he's talking about the fact that medical labels can contribute to stigma, you know. So it gives an example of a a, a college student, a young woman who has some kind of break, um, and he says if you send her back to school, essentially with a label, um, her ability to continue and to reintegrate, perhaps a diagnostic label will be much more difficult than if we simply uh, address and talk about the kind of suffering she 
she underwent. And here, I mean, Menninger is a, what I think we might label as a, a mainline Protestant in the 20th century, given his connection and placement within Christianity. And it's a period where, as we've already talked about, we, we see both the kind of integrative work he's trying to do alongside a deeper suspicion. So when you when you do some of that looking at 20th century sources in Christianity today and Christian center, century, one of the clear observations to make is that there is a kind of suspicion in and distancing in Christianity today to say, you know, that this this medical stuff may be helpful, but we need first primarily to think about spiritual care for those who suffer. And that's really a, a kind of kind of reality, a kind of conversation that exists throughout the 20th century. In the mid-1980s, there's, uh, there's a, Christian, a Christianity Today article that talking, talks about the blessings of mental anguish. As, again, drawing to, hearkening back to Mather, um, illness turns our attention to God. But here it's talking about the great, some of the great figures in Christianity essentially would not have been that great if they would not have suffered from mental illness and an implication here. So people like Spurgeon and Kierkegaard, that if they had been treated, they might not have contributed what they contributed to mental illness. And so these are all Christians looking to navigate belief and practice and suffering um, in their midst and using the best theological tools they know to, to draw conclusions and often different conclusions. That's interesting. You mentioned a Christianity Today article from a little ways back, but I'm pretty sure in the past month I've read an article on Relevant uh, on their website about mental illness and, you know, three things, three blessings or whatever. And one of them was it forces you to focus solely on God. And so that's, I mean, they definitely still persist a lot of these viewpoints. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and so... Yeah, I mean, I think that this this is the kind of conversation and around these points of tension that I think can be very helpful for Christian communities to say, well, what does it mean to name suffering as blessing? Is it always the case? Or is there sometimes when suffering is simply just suffering? You know, is suffering always redemptive? Is it not redemptive? And there's, I don't think that there are easy answers here in any way. Um, but I think that this is conversation that can shape very deeply how communities react. So what do you think, aside from the the sort of the thread throughout history that you've looked at in the book um, with mental illness and how we have looked at it, what's your biggest takeaway from all the research the book's done, it's out there? What's, what's your biggest nugget um, that you want a, a listener or a reader to walk away with after they read your book? What does it mean for us today? That's a great question. Uh, so I, I think my deep conviction, uh, my deep takeaway is that we need to name together the reality of suffering and then discern together how we're called to respond. And so I, I mentioned early on, as you asked me to talk a little bit about my own tradition, about the Moravian Church, this, this deep commitment to um, navigating faith and life as part of a community. And I see that, I mean, it's one of the things I draw from the work of these figures and the life of the church today is there, I don't think that any one of us holds the answer, um, but I think that being deeply embedded in one another's stories offers a kind of practical response. There's a, a theologian named John Swinton who writes about um, disability and mental illness. 
and theology. He is has both theological degrees and medical degrees. He's a he's a nurse in the UK, um, but he talks about practical theodicy. Theodicy being this sense that how can how can a good God exist if there is evil and suffering in the world? And he, drawing on some other theologians, really dismisses that and says, you know, that's not really the question to figure out. What's what, what we're called to do is to have a kind of practical response as communities of faith in light of suffering. Um, and so that, that, I think, is where I stand. And for me, looking at these paradigmatic figures over time helps illuminate some of the ways that that, um, that, that has taken shape. I think that's an interesting response. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. So if I am, tell me and correct me. But to almost look at it from the standpoint that God exists and suffering exists. And so what do we do about it in our everyday lives? Yep, I would I would affirm that um, summary of my words for sure. Very interesting. I like it. Yeah. Well, hey, if you are interested in this book, again, it's called Madness, American Protestant Responses to Mental Illness. You can grab it on Amazon or any number of places. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. I would definitely recommend it. It's a history book, but also it's written from the stories of these five key figures we've talked about. So it's a great read. You should pick it up for sure. Dr. Heather Vosick, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any closing words for us? Nope, just a, a word of thanks to, to you, Robert, and to Steve. It's been delightful to be in conversation. It has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. Final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.